Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. In Matthew chapter 16, uh, Jesus is uh, in the land of the gods near Caesarea Philippi where there's temples all scattered along the mountains. And uh, there he stops, he looks at his disciples and he said, how do, you, how do people explain me? What, what do you hear? How, how do people define me? Who do, who do they say that I am? And, Jesus, and the disciples said, well, some people believe that you are a reincarnation of an old prophet or a reincarnation of a, of a new prophet. And Jesus said, but you've been exposed to everything over the last three years. <clears throat> you know, who do you, how do you explain it? How, who, who do you say that I am? Of course, Peter, the quickest to always respond, said, well, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said, you have answered correctly. Peter and flesh and blood did not, in other words, you didn't just arrive at this because of what you have experienced, but the Spirit himself has revealed this to you. And then he said, I will build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. In the original language, what it would mean is, is that hell itself will, will work diligently to destroy the church. But hell has no power over the church because the church is the encapsulation of the kingdom of God. The church will never be overtaken by hell. But the second thing that I want to bring out in that quick verse is that the church is supposed to be the aggressor. It's the gates, the gates of hell that should be threatened by the forces of the church. Not just by the kingdom of God, but by us as individuals. Not in philosophy and not in programs and not even in methodology. I mean, we're not going to win because we were right. We're going to win because we fight for what is right and because we stand with Jesus Christ. And I'm afraid that we're going to grow cold and weak and powerless and the gates of hell can remain unlocked, and the church is no threat. But that's not the church that Jesus is building. And so that's a, those are pretty strong statements, but uh, you know, what, what am I trying to get at? Well, over the next few weeks, I want us to be praying. And I think that the Lord has prepared us for this. We're going to uh, establish a, well, quite an initiative, a prayer initiative, uh, for, the, uh, for Russellville. We're going to start with Russellville and hopefully we'll work out through the whole River Valley. In a couple of weeks, we're going to start uh, on a Sunday. After, after church, we'll have lunch and then uh, we'll join back here. And our initiative is to pray over every street in Russellville by April of 2022. And, and what we're going to do is not by philosophy and not, well, our prayer team but the church of Jesus Christ are going to go out in, uh, and pray over the people who live next door to us. Not just literally next door, but in our own communities, in our own uh, neighborhoods. And, uh, and so I hope that you will begin to think about what it looks like for us, and for some, maybe for the first time, to be the ones that's charging after lost souls to be the ones to individually pray for and with individuals. And so I hope that you will not be, I hope that you'll be energized by that and not scared to death. If you are scared to death, then join the rest of us who are scared to death to see what God might do when we start saying yes. And so, uh, you know, I, we'll, we'll be giving you more information about it, what, it, what it looks like. Obviously, we're not going to get it all done on May 2nd, but that's going to kind of be our start date uh, where we will start pushing out and and encouraging community groups and life groups and D groups and every other group and family units and neighborhoods and friends and uh, to join us as we just go around the city and just uh, and just taking back what Satan is threatening to steal. <laughs>
so I hope you will join us, uh, especially on that, on that day uh, as we launch, and you'll see just how, how much power the church of Jesus Christ still has uh, and influence that we still have in, uh, in, in loving people. All right, well, today we're going to be in Esther, chapter 1, if you want to go ahead and turn there. Uh, encourage you to do that. You can read, read right along with me. We're going to make our way through the first chapter. But today is simply an introduction. All through the Bible, there seem to be miracles. There's, you know, I mean, we, we love those. Uh, we hear the audible voice of God, and he speaks to prophets, and then those prophets tell us about it, and they write it down. And then Jesus comes along, and he does miracle after miracle after miracle, healing people, feeding people, raising people from the dead even. And after Jesus returns to heaven, then the Holy Spirit comes, and he, he rests on people, and there's all these demonstrations of power and miracles and authority and all that sort of stuff. And demons are cast out, and people are healed, and Man, if God is capable of revealing himself so clearly, why wouldn't he do that today? Why, why does he make it so hard for us to believe and to declare and to proclaim? Things don't work quite the same way that they seem to work in the Scripture. I, th I, th I think that we think it would be a whole lot easier. We'd be a whole lot better off if it did. It'd be easier to believe. Uh, and, and, and if you think that, if you think that it would be easier to believe if God would just screech across heaven and say, I am who I am, you're wrong because he did that before and people still didn't believe in him. When, when Moses, you've heard me talk about this before, but when Moses is standing beside the burning bush, a bush on fire is not burning and it's God's voice and Moses is arguing with it. Now, if you think that you're going to be convinced by some miraculous sign, we're not. You're, you remember one of my favorite illustrations of this is, in, is Gideon. And Gideon gets a call by God and he says, I want, to, I want you to prove that you're with me and you know, let this spot be wet and all around it be dry. And he woke up the next morning, it was exactly what he prayed. And he said, well, I'm still not convinced. I want this spot dry and everything around it wet. And it happened exactly the way Gideon said and he still wasn't convinced. So I just wonder, what would it take? Why does, why does God make faith so hard if he doesn't have to? Why does he make it easier? Well, welcome to the book of Esther. You see, Esther is here. Every promise that God ever made is being threatened. His people find themselves on the very brink, I mean moments, from extinction and if ever there were a time for God to demonstrate himself and to flex, this would be it. But through the entire book, God's name is not mentioned once. There are zero prophecies. There are no words from the prophets. There are no visions. There are no directions. There are no new commandments to be kept. There is no temple. There is no glory of God radiating. There are no sacrifices. There are no miracles. And God never supernaturally shows up to rescue in a lion's den or in a fiery furnace. All they have in the book of Esther is the benchmarks that was laid for them yesterday. God's faithfulness is all they are working with. In fact, Esther reads a whole lot like our story today. God's people, not going to be super political, but I think it's easy to, to read that in here. God's people are living as foreigners in a very, very pagan culture. And this culture does not share their view or their beliefs about God. And they are surrounded by a society that judges them based on their appearances and constantly trying to seduce them to value what this kingdom values and to place uh, value in what uh, it longs for and desires as a chief end. If the kingdom doesn't approve, you get canceled. As the story unfolds, the culture grows very hostile toward God's people and sees them as a threat. 
before you know it, they find themselves in very grave danger. And if, 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 man, if God is going to reveal himself, he'd better hurry up. But yet, God chooses silence. In the book of Daniel, God appears miraculously to his people uh, to prove that he is with them in exile. But in the book of Esther, God remains hidden. In the book of Esther, if God's people are to avoid compromises and to be able to continue to, to follow the Lord, um, it's not going to be because he shows up supernaturally and proves it. If God's people are going to remain faithful to him, they're just going to have to look back through their history and say, well, if God did all of that, what was it for? If God provided for them, wouldn't God provide for me if he is faithful? God has always delivered his people. Why would God make an exception for us? They're, ha- they're going to have to learn in this moment if they ever truly trusted God or not. This is, this is huge because it is easy when you are the majority to trust. It takes no effort to be in the majority. When it is hard to trust is when you are not getting your way. When you're in experiencing difficulty, when things are threatening to you, and you still choose to believe God's faithfulness, that's when you know that you're trusting him. And so for many, for the very first time in their Christian life, this is a day where we know if we truly trust God or not, or if we've just trusted in the power of being in the majority. Two weeks ago, for the first time, the majority of Christian, of uh, Americans do not go to church. For the first time in our country's history, we are at 47%. That's not great. It is shrinking fast. But you know what? I don't think that the church is weaker, which tells me that maybe many people who aren't attending church anymore maybe never have trusted in God's faithfulness with just going along with the culture because the culture was the majority. All right, well, let's go ahead and begin in verse 1. Now, in the days of Ahasuerus, now, I'll stop for a moment. Oh, boy, everybody who goes to church here always knows if he stops three or four words in, we're here all day long. And that, that may not be true today. But uh, Ahasuerus, I just want to set, set the story up, uh, is... Uh, Xerxes the first. Okay, so you know this is written by Hebrews, and uh, and so just just know if you were to study history, uh, this is this is Xerxes the first. He's the son of Darius, which was the uh, king uh, over Daniel and uh, in, in those days, uh, King Darius, the Medes and the Persians, and solidified empire. From those days, it went from just being a kingdom to now. Xerxes I is ruling an entire kingdom, an empire of, of kingdoms, multiple, multiple places. So uh, if you've ever seen the movie uh, 300 or if you've ever heard of uh, the Battle of Thermopylae when you know, Persia is charging after Greece to destroy Greece and those 300 guys stood in opposition to a force of almost 2 million Persians, uh, this is Xerxes I. This is So if you get an idea of what kind of man he really is, you can go back and read history to to set a little more context. He's not the central character of the story, so his biography is not developed uh, uh, overly. So now in the days of Ahasuerus, the the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia, over 127 provinces. Now listen, you're supposed to be impressed by this. So everybody go, ooh, oh yeah, wow, Ahasuerus, you are something, yeah. Most powerful man in the entire world without a doubt. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, the Ahasuerus, now there's three of them in scripture too, by the way. This is only one of the three. This isn't all three of them. Ezra talks about one. This is not him, all right? Daniel talks about uh, 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 Darius's dad, is also called Ahasuerus. This is not him either. This is his grandson. So, in those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel. Don't you want to live in a citadel? Man. 
In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and the governors of the provinces were before him. While he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor, and listen to this, the pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days, six months. And when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa, the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days in the court of the garden of the king's palace. Now for two years, now before you're too impressed by him, he is a king. He doesn't do much. Uh, and, and worse yet, everything he has, he inherited. He's only a couple years into his reign. He's not accomplished uh, very much personally. But you should still want to be him. <laughs> right? I mean, that's kind of the point. You should still want to be. It's good to be king. So Ahasuerus takes two years to take inventory and to consolidate the kingdom and to bring it all in and to make it look. He rebrands it. He rebrands the kingdom and then he throws a huge party because everybody else in these 126 kingdoms, provinces, they haven't gotten to see Susa. They might have heard about it, but I want to impress them. You can know what I've got. I want you to see what I got. So everybody come to my house. King Ahasuerus has gathered the military and the nobles and the governors and the leaders throwing this massive party. Verse 4 tells us why. The pomp of his greatness needs to be on display. The king has achieved everything this world has to offer. Well, inherited it anyway. What he is saying is, be impressed with me. Be envious of me. Verse 4 says that he took this 180 days, and then he added seven to it. And this is for, you know, 180 days, it will take me a hundred, sometimes you can watch these shows like, you know, these people win the lottery and they build these big mansions and it takes like an hour to see their house. It took King Xerxes 180 days for you to see all that he has. But you know what? You little people didn't get to see it. So if you can make your way to Susa, if you can come to the capital, I want to feed everybody for seven days. Even, even if you are a nobody. I mean, how, I mean that's, he's a pretty good guy, really, when you come to think of it. We don't even have categories about how rich and powerful, uh, really, he was. Verse, verse 6, he says, there were white cotton curtains. <laughs> Who in the world does that? In dusty Susa, <laughs> white cotton curtains. Violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars, also couches of gold. They're not comfortable, but they're expensive. <laughs> gold and silver on mosaic pa pavement <laughs> of porphyry. This is like quartz. Uh, it's, it's, a, it's like an uh, igneous rock that's got crystals all flowing through it. Marble, mother of pearl, precious stones. We don't know what to do with all this pearl. What do we do with it? I'll oh, just put it on the floor. We'll walk on it. They'll be impressed. They'll want to be me. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. There's only two other places in the Old Testament where such extravagance is found. One of them is when they're talking about building the, the tabernacle. The second one is when they built the temple. And now, King Ahasuerus' floor. At the time that Esther comes around, tabernacle, long gone, and the temple has been burned and left in ruin. And God has been nowhere to be found ever since. 
So from, from the outside looking in, looks like the king has all of the glory and all the wealth. But in, in verse eight, we find that the king doesn't just love wealth and influence. Now it's important for us to get a full picture of his power and his, uh, his temperament is really important. And I think that's what the author is trying to get at. Look at verse eight. And drinking was according to this edict. And here's the rule on drinking. If we're gonna use the king's best wine, there needs to be a rule. Now here's the rule. There's no compulsion. There's no rules. Now listen, if there's no rules, would you just not say anything? If you're gonna throw a feast and just let people drink, wouldn't people just drink to their full on their own? But no, no, no. I need them to know that I said so. I need them to know that they're not taking advantage of me. I need them to know that I'm in ultimate control of this little shindig. No compulsion. Verse, well, we just thought verse eight. Let's look at verse, uh, verse nine. Queen Vashti also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. So the king's parading all of his splendor for six months. Can you imagine that? Hoping that they're going to be impressed with him. Now what he's, what he's hoping is, if, 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 if you think about the, the philosophy of this, sometimes kings would not this extravagantly, but you invite people to the capital because I want you to know something. I want you to know that I'm doing pretty good. If I'm doing pretty good, we're doing pretty good. And, and if we're doing pretty good, I obviously am a pretty good decision maker. Uh, in, in other words, uh, all I do is win. And I really want you to be on my team. Be loyal to me. Because you know, if you're loyal to me, here's what's going to happen. Trickle-down economics is going to happen. If you will fight for me, some of this laying on the floor could be yours. But you have to be loyal to me. And so you're supposed to be impressed with him so that you'll be loyal to him and hope that you can walk around with your hand holding his, uh, his pocket. I don't really care why you're loyal. I just want to know that you'll give your life for my extravagance. And I, I really just want to know that you want to be me. Obviously, I'm speaking for a king of Hazarus. And... What's strange is that everything I've just described, although is extreme, extreme, I don't think it's much different than what we find in the world today. I mean, that, those are still the things we want, right? We want, we want money. We want power. We want control. We want people to like us. We want people to be loyal to us. We want people to care about the same things that we care about. And we don't really care why you're loyal. We just want to know that you validate me, I just, I, I'm in this place of need where I need you to know how powerful I am. And if you don't know how powerful I am, I want to just prove to you how powerful I am. And when I don't get my way, what am I going to do? I'm going to get angry. I'm going to prove it. Now, again, Ahasuerus way off the charts extreme. But what I'm saying is wherever you are in that line, I'm telling you, you're, a, you're just a few decisions away from King Ahasuerus because it doesn't stop. There's nowhere to stop. Every time that you get what you want, it, it just keeps feeding the monster. Ahasuerus is the product of this is what's going to keep happening until you get there. It never is enough. Never is enough. Everything that the world promises to bring happiness, satisfaction, and contentment is never enough. Always more. This culture is constantly calling us to embrace their Values and wanting us to be impressed. That sadly we are impressed. So we do compromise. We do give in. We do grow tired of fighting. We really grow tired of losing ground. We drop our guard. We compromise. And we shrink. And we say, well, we'll just go to the party. But we won't value what you value. You know, think about it for a second. Think about how kids uh, exaggerate. <clears throat> you ever heard kids tell a story? They use big words. Uh, exaggerated words. Not always. How many times do kids say... I, I, 
parents only can answer. Uh, how many times you hear kids say, hey, watch this, watch this, watch me do this, watch me do this. Why? Well, I'm trying to impress you with what I've learned how to do. I want you to notice me, right? I want you to notice me. Hey, look at me over, over here. I know your hands are full. I know you haven't slept in weeks. Hey, watch this. Hey, listen to me say this. <laughs> that, got a little bit, that got a little bit too close there. Isn't it? You ever seen kids how quickly they tell on a friend? Mm-hmm. Yes, trying to impress others, even if they're adults. You ever looked at something and thought, boy, if I just had that, I could be happy. If I could just get this promotion, if I could just get that friend, if I could just get into that friend group, if I could just have this, if I could just get, if I could just have that, then... But everything that the world promises is a lie. That's, that's all the world knows how to do is, is lie. If you go over and you see what, what Paul had to say in Ephesians chapter 6, it's pretty, pretty clear that we do not wrestle. Listen to me very closely, especially the church. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood. That's not our fight. So if the church tries to take the fight to people, we've already lost because our fight's not with people. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Listen to me closely. You are never going to reach people by being right or beating them up. It, will, it won't work. It can't work. You will reach them by gently loving them the way Jesus loves them. So when I say the world, I'm not talking about the people. I'm talking about the system. The system that Jesus himself says is ruled by Satan himself. And then he calls him the father of all lies. So if you expect the world to bring you the payoff, the world's nothing but a liar because its boss is a liar. It's all it knows how to do. So if you see people making it and you start envying them and want to be like them, it's never enough. It is a trap that takes well-meaning, good, godly, loving people and starts seducing them into this way of thinking. And it, it, gets, us off ba- it gets us off balance. We start fighting the wrong fight. People start being our enemy instead of our opportunity. Well, King Ahasuerus didn't have those tools to work with. Look at verse 10. Now on the seventh day when the heart of the king was merry with wine. <laughs> this, is, this is almost comical. He commanded, uh, I will say him in English, uh, me, human. I mean, their English wasn't great. <laughs> Come on, that's pretty funny. I'm trying to break a little tension here in the room. Me, human, really? That's funny. Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha. Who looks at their baby and says, Bigtha? That's awful. Bagtha, that's worse. Zethar, and this guy's not even alive. His name's Carcass. (laughs) These are seven eunuchs. Eunuchs had not just taken vows of abstinence sexually, but they were uh, made to be such who served in the presence of the king because all of my harem is going to be around these guys. I want to make sure they don't get in my way. And so he told that all of his seven eunuchs to uh, served in the presence of King Ahasuerus to bring Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to make sure she brings that crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty for she was lovely to look at. The last day of the feast, the king is drunk and he commands his seven servants to go get his wife. He wants to show off, you know, for 187 days, you've seen the best I've got. But wait till you see her. How romantic. This guy is so romantic. True love. He's thinking anybody that's not been impressed yet, when they look at her and well, you've been drinking all you can drink. So, I mean, 
You're going to want her for yourself. What kind of husband does it? You're going to look at her and say, man, I wish she were mine. You can't have her. She's mine. Look at all my stuff. You should want to be me. That's all this guy's living for. <laughs> Even at the expense of his own queen. Look at verse 12. Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. Now, this is meant to take your breath away. At this point of the story, you've already said, ooh, and now you're supposed to say, whoa. T refuses the king. Does she not know who this cat is? It's Xerxes I. He is the ruler of empires. He has 127 provinces that he rules over. Nobody's ever seen this much money. Vashti's not impressed. She knows him the best. She's the closest to him. No. This story was moving. I mean, it's not really predictable, but it's swift and it's smooth, and then all of a sudden it's a... What in the world? 187 days up to this moment. Now, you're supposed to remember Mother of Pearl and Marble and Porphyry and white linen curtains and silver rods and golden glasses and now all you're going to remember is Vashti said no. I mean that, uh, you go back and look, some of the hieroglyphs, there's like a, a pound sign, like a hashtag and it says Vashti says no on all these old, old tablets. I just made that up standing right here. That is gold. So, you know, Ahasuerus does what every good loving husband does. He he sobers up. He comes to himself, says, what have I done? i got to fix this. Honey, I'm so sorry. I've embarrassed you. And uh, will you ever forgive me? No, he gets mad and says, all I do is win. I love you. You are the most beautiful creature ever made. And I'm so angry with you. So here's what he does in verse 12. The second part of verse 12. This, at this, the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. So instead of doing the right thing, he did something else. He called for the seven wisest men who always knows the thing to do. Go back and look at that, but pick up in verse 16. One of the men named Mimukin steps up and he says, not only against the king. Now remember, everybody around you is a yes man. Everybody is loyal to you. So these guys are not really wise. They're only wise at the king uh, with the king because they agree with everything he says. Not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against all of the officials and all the people who are in all of the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. Hey, these are the smart ones. These guys are the smart ones. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. In other words, all women just got permission to disrespect their husbands. Man, this gets, I mean, everybody's drunk. Try to remember that, but they are blowing this way out of proportion. I mean, this guy thinks Vashti's refusing to come to the king could threaten the very fabric of their society, right? So if somebody disagrees with me, if I'm a, if I'm a, a government official and somebody disagrees with me, here's what we're going to do. We're going to pass a law. We're going to change everybody's behavior by passing a law. Make sure everybody agrees with us and they cannot think for themselves. That's what we're going to do. So let's get this handled at a political level. Everyone must adjust to the new way of thinking. So if something needs to be done, no wife will ever listen to her husband again. What we need is a law. Women, listen to your husbands. Not like Queen Vashti. So here's what he says in verse 19. If it pleases the king, let a royal order go out from him and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes so that it may not be repealed. I mean, this is a law that will stand and you can't change it. That Vashti is never again to come before a king Ahasuerus. 
And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. Well, she's already the best, right? He already said that. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. Now listen, this is, this is the funniest part, I think, of really the whole first chapter. So, so if we don't do something quick, everyone is going to hear about this. If we don't do something quick, notice, everyone's going to hear about it. So here's how we're going to keep it close. Let's tell everyone about it by a law. Everyone must hear this law. It's, it's kind of silly. Now, the one person who didn't want to be before the king is Vashti. Her punishment shall be, she will never be before the king. Did you ever pick up on that before? The one woman who does not want to be queen will be removed from being a queen. That'll show her. think that they can legislate marital respect and honor and patriarchy of wives need to give their husbands. I tell you, the way to change people, make a law about it. That'll change it. And if you don't agree, Vashti, if you don't agree, cancel. You see, honestly, you go back and read a lot of the Old Testament, you'll find we really haven't changed much at all. We've changed our clothes and how we button them up, but we've not changed much. Verse 21 to 22, despite all of this, the devices of the, the, the advice pleases the king. Letters are sent to every province under his reign. Law is established. Now, suddenly, the, the greatness of the pomp of the king is reduced to absolute rubble. These people have been wowed for six months and all they're going to remember is the last few minutes of this last day. So a couple of really quick takeaways. When I say really quick, that's just a figure of speech. Uh, the story makes it really clear that the things in this world, I've already talked about it a little bit, so I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I need, you, I need us to understand that the things that the world promises will never be enough to satisfy. They're, they're not intended to be. You see, this world as it was created was, was never meant to satisfy us. Uh, the relationships of this world were never meant to be our satisfaction. Uh, pockets full of money were never supposed to be our, our satisfaction. Uh, respect and honor and the, and the right cert running in the right circles, none of these things are ever supposed to satisfy us. We were created with the image of God upon us in Genesis chapter 1. Now, we started messing all that up pretty early on in it. And, and the image of God was taken away from us. That's the, the live spirit of God's presence dwelling in us. It's completely taken away from us entirely. And so now we don't have, we're not the image of God. We're the image of Adam. And we walk in human nature and fallen carnality. And everything that we look at, we're mesmerized by and want more of it. That's the lie of the world. Everything that you're rushing to is empty. And when you grab a hold of it, there's a bigger one on the other side of it. And you just keep taking steps further and further away from the one thing that truly can satisfy, and that is a relationship with Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. It's the only thing that brings satisfaction and contentment. That's what Esther chapter 1 is supposed to be teaching us, even though God is silent here. He rules 127 provinces. It's not enough. 187 days of feasting is not enough. There's never enough. I want you to remember this. The world, I'm not talking about the people in it. I'm talking about the system because it's always been the same system. The system of the world cannot, cannot keep its promises. So if that's the promise you're chasing... It's the promise you'll keep being failed in. 
The story shows us that sometimes we have to wait to see what God is doing. Notice that God doesn't seem to be present anywhere in the story. I mean, you think about how, how would we react? And, you know, again, I don't, I'm, this is not necessarily political, but just as an illustration. What do you think we would do in our country today if our president were to take six months off work and take all of our tax money and throw a party and get so drunk that at the end of the six months he divorces his wife and then makes a, a, start making laws? I mean, what would we lose our mind? probably think the world's coming to an end. That's pretty much what's happening in the book of Esther. I mean, if God could stop it, why wouldn't God stop it? Now, hold on just a second. Let me back up for just a second uh, again. If God could stop it, why doesn't he? We'll read the book of Esther and you'll find out why God doesn't stop it. We have the luxury of the whole book. They're living in the first chapter. All of God's people saying, if God is, why God doesn't? Why can't God? Why won't God? Does he not love us anymore? Does he not care anymore? If God is supreme and the whole world, believe me, the world system's going to scream that. They've been screaming it for 6,000 years. If God is, then why doesn't God? Well, God doesn't sometimes in chapter one. Chapter one is not the end of the story. So for Christians today, I would say, if you look at our government and you look around the world and, and we begin to say, hey, we're losing control. What is going on with our world? Why is God so silent? Just because he's silent doesn't mean he's not at work. Sometimes things happen. Sometimes terrible things. Sometimes crosses happen. Don't get nervous just because you're on this side of the resurrection. I mean, unless your only reason of trusting God is because you've always won. Sometimes we have to go through fire. Sometimes we have to go through a lot of difficulty. Sometimes we have to get purified. It doesn't reduce our power. It doesn't reduce our strength. It doesn't reduce the Spirit's ability to work within us. We don't have to resort to, resort to name-calling and getting angry and throwing fits because we're not getting our way. No, our, our, our rule, our expectation is to just be faithful to the Lord until he returns. Just keep doing what the word of God tells us to do. Keep believing in a God that we can't even see working right now. That's what we do. And, and for those of us who think this is a new problem, go back 2,500 years and you'll find that we've got pioneers teaching us how to live this way. I love that the author, whomever the author of Esther is, most scholars believe it was Esther's cousin Mordecai, which we'll talk about later. He ain't scared. He ain't afraid. Now, he writes it 25 years later, but I wonder what will be said 25 years after today. We'll see what God does. I want to collect every little detail of this story so that we can see in 25 years, wow, look what God did or didn't do. Think about this. If there were no feast, there'd be no drunk king. If there were no drunk king, there'd be no call to a wife. If there were no call to a wife, there'd be no refusal. If there's no refusal, there'd be no angry king. If there's no angry king, there's no foolish counsel. If there's no foolish counsel, there's no Vashti deposal. No Vashti deposal, no Esther. No Esther, no Jews. No Jews, no Jesus. No Jesus, no hope. Hmm. How in the world did God do that in silence? So this is supposed to encourage you that regardless of what media you take in and what hopelessness the world's system has to offer, the world lies. It always lies. It will make you think that you're losing, Christian. We don't lose. We don't lose. It's not that we can't. We don't. Unless we don't trust in Him. Unless we take the world into our own hands. 
He's at work. He keeps his promises. And you don't have to get angry. You don't have to get afraid. We simply need to put our faith in a faithful God who loves us. Let me close with this final thought. This story is about a king calling for his bride to come to a feast. But that story is actually in the context of a much larger story about another king who calls his bride to a feast. The Bible tells that Jesus is not a king. He is the king of kings. And his people who trust him are his bride. And he declares that there is not a prettier bride. In fact, he is making her holy, without spot, without blemish, wrinkle-free. And he asks her to come to a feast. And even though Jesus is a king, he isn't like Ahasuerus. Ahasuerus sent seven servants to get his wife so he could parade her around as a sex object before crowds of drunken men. This king cared nothing about his wife Vashti. This king was willing to expose her in shame in order to impress his friends that he obviously didn't care for either. And when she refused, he refused her and said, never will you see my face again. Jesus didn't send servants to call his bride. He left the throne room and came to her. And he got her ready. And he beautified her. And she refused. And the wages of sin is death. And she should have been banished. But he took on her banishment himself. took the wrath that we deserved and it didn't affect our standing at all so this Jesus comes to invite us to a feast not like a feast that the world throws some drunken orgy but, but a place where the, the bride comes in honor and glory to give honor and glory to the groom, the king of kings. What a beautiful story. So when God is silent, God is never silent. He's just not listening to the right story. He's always at work. He's always doing. He's always doing good. He's always purifying, getting us ready. And I'm telling you, we are the bride of Christ. And he has come and he has invited us to a feast. And he's bringing us to himself even now. And everything that the king has is ours. How dare we grumble and complain and get angry? How dare we? You know, as Vashti, we don't have to reject this king because we're not being exposed exposed or put to open shame or being ridiculed or mocked or being lovingly valued by our creator and we are a possession that he adores as his own masterpiece workmanship Ephesians tells us 10 to chapter 2 verse 10 so this morning I just want to remind you of who you are and I remind you whose you are. And I remind you the authority that you have. It's not just a bride, but the queen of the king of kings. And may we walk in that power. And for those of us who are this day that have never surrendered to Christ, you're trying to serve King Ahasuerus. It's no wonder you live in such a volatile world. You're listening to the wrong story. You're trusting in the wrong power. You're dependent on the wrong source of satisfaction. Jesus is enough. The good thing is he's all we need. I'm going to ask you to stand with me if you would.
We're going to have a baptism in just a few moments. Right down here. Um, I'm excited about that. See people's lives transformed. I appreciate everybody that's here for that today. Uh, you're our honored guests. And we're so proud of Lena, and I'm so proud uh, of the work that she has done and, and so many of you faithfully <laughs> during impossible days of defeat have continued to pray and support her. And uh, it matters. And church, I want us to know it matters. It matters. And I love that, that Jesus, no matter, no matter where we are or what we've done, purifies us, transforms our lives. <clears throat> and if, you're, if you've not experienced that this morning, or maybe you're, just, maybe you're just in need of a reminder, I invite you to come and just, and just surrender again to the Lord and just ask Him, ask Him to be your King. Quit following the kings of this world and just surrender to the King this morning. Pray with me. Lord, I thank you this morning for your truth. I thank you for these truths. I thank you for the reminder of who we are and how easy it is to fall under the spell of the lies of the world. I mean, it happens in a second. I mean, we get, we get caught off of our footing in just a second. Lord, help us to, help us to learn how to take those thoughts captive help help us to to be so intentional that that we're not like these wise men who just become yes men of the world system i pray that you would continue to purify us continue to make us holy help us to be help us to be a, the bride of Christ that that brings honor and glory and may we be found faithful when you appear in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.